Well, it is officially Christmas time, which means if you've not been given permission yet, you can start listening to Christmas music. My wife starts immediately after the football games on Thanksgiving. So it it starts early and, and comes often at our house. So I thought I would let you know where my family is with some Christmas song favorites right now. My son Pierce loves to sing Jingle Bells, Batman Smells. Now, I'm not sure who wrote this song, but I got a sneaking suspicion they never thought it would last this long because I sang it as a kid, and my kids love it also. And my daughter, Anna Kate, will not stop singing that she wants a hippopotamus for Christmas. I don't know where she was exposed to this song, but she, wants to, she loves to sing the line about hippopotamuses. And there are always extra isses in there. And naturally, my Claire, if you know her at all, this will not surprising, uh, she has fallen in love with Feliz Navidad. Um, and so we are wishing everyone a Merry Christmas in Spanish at our house. And so that's kind of where we're at. Uh, our family Christmas list, our playlist keeps growing and changing. Um, and so if we get any more fun ones, I'll keep you up to date on that. Um, but there are many fantastic and wonderful songs to sing this season And I'm excited that as a church, we get to gather to celebrate, to worship Jesus, not just in normal worship, but in festive Christmas worship as we celebrate Advent, that Jesus Christ came and that he's coming back. And one of my favorite Christmas songs, and in fact, it's probably the loudest one the kids sing in the car, is Joy to the World. Joy to the World was written in 1719 by an English hymn writer named Isaac Watts who based it off of Psalm 98. What people don't often realize is when Ratz wrote the hymn, he wrote it with a view towards Christ's triumphal return, his second coming, rather than his first. So rather than just being a Christmas song, it really anticipates Christ's return back to the earth when he will come back to take his church home. So this joy that we sing of is a joy that Watts anticipates that we will experience When Jesus Christ, no longer the baby we celebrate at Christmas, when Jesus Christ, the same one who died for our sins and on the third day rose again, that same Jesus Christ comes back to take us home. And in this hymn, Joy to the World, Watts writes these words, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart Prepare him room. And Watts then anticipates the exceeding joy that happens when Christ returns. And he admonishes the church then to receive her as king and to prepare him room. During the month of December as a church, we are going to be celebrating Advent. You'll note you have a special Advent bulletin. We're going to do some special Advent things. Advent by definition, is the waiting, expecting, observing, praying, hoping, and preparing for the arrival of Jesus Christ, first as the child and Savior, and then as the returning King. So today and for the next three Sundays, including Christmas morning, we will be looking at the Gospel of Luke and looking at the first advent when Jesus came as a baby while all the while looking towards the second advent when he will someday return. So we will be in the book of Luke. 
And we're going to consider these characters that Luke introduces us to as a means to dig into our theme. You will note it from your bulletin, prepare him, the room, prepare him room. You may have seen the slides of Facebook. I got a quick shout out to Gretchen Hines who created all that for me. She did an absolutely awesome job on all of it. So if you see her, you might commend her for that. Our bulletins are beautiful this month. But prepare him room. This line that Isaac Watts wrote is our theme. What does it look like for us to prepare him room? And what we mean by that is what does it look like us for take the intentional time, the intentional space in our lives so that our Advent season is focused on him, that it becomes about him and about his glory and not merely just about presence and trees and lights and family. See, all of those things are good. They're good things. Don't ever hear me say that they're not good things, but oftentimes it's the good things in life that distract us from the truth, right? We buy into the good and we miss the truth. And my fear is always as we lead into a holiday season for my family and for yours, That we'd get so wrapped up in the season that we'd miss Jesus. This is my fear every year. Because it is possible to gather together as families and have great events and not acknowledge Jesus. It's possible that we could put up trees and lights and buy each other extraordinary things and miss Jesus, who is the reason for the season. So this morning I want to ask you to open up your Bibles to Luke's gospel, the first chapter. We're going to start our way through this. We won't exclusively stay in Luke. Uh, We're going to move around a little bit. This morning we'll find ourselves in the book of John as well. But as Luke begins his book, he writes a short introduction. And, And what he does is his introduction is he starts to lay out why he wrote the book. And it's pretty extraordinary if you lean into these first four Four verses because Luke says that he wrote it for a man named Theophilus. I just forgot his name. Theophilus. I was in my mind going, Theophilus? This happens to me from time to time. He writes the book for a man named Theophilus. So look at Luke 1, 1 through 4 with me. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, what Luke begins to pen here is a lot of guys have written this down, but I'm writing it down. And he tells you that he seeks out eyewitnesses and ministers of truth. By the way, that's an incredible testimony to the accuracy of our Bible that Luke tells you up front, I went and found eyewitnesses because don't miss this. When this gospel goes out in the first century, there were people around who could have refuted it because they watched it. And yet we don't see that happening. You find eyewitnesses verifying it over and over again. That's why Luke continues in verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And why Luke chooses to write is he wants Theophilus to be certain about his belief in Jesus Christ. Watch this, because this is love. 
So he writes him a book. In fact, he writes him two books. He pins the book of Acts for the same reason because he cares so much about this man, Theophilus, that he would know the truth and not just keep mudding through life unaware of what had happened. Luke sought these things out, recorded them, put them together in an orderly fashion because he wanted Theophilus to be certain. And that's an awesome testimony. So having introduced his book, having put this before Theophilus, if you're going to write to somebody and you're going to tell them, I want you to be certain about this, then you're going to expect as you start introducing characters, Jesus might be the first guy you'd start with, right? Because that's the point of him writing. He'd be confident about Jesus, but Jesus isn't the first character you meet. In fact, in verse 5 of chapter 1, he begins to tell the story of an older couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. The text says that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. It paints a bleak, bleak picture on their family. You, you may have seen this picture also. You saw it in Abraham and Sarah too. And the fascinating thing about that is it wants to paint this picture for you of a hopelessness. Because isn't that where Christmas comes out of? That's the whole reality of Advent is in the darkest part of the deepest night when it doesn't even seem possible that light would appear. That light appears. So in this hopeless place, Zechariah, who is a high priest or who is a priest, the angel of the Lord comes to him while he's serving in the temple and tells him, you will have a son and his name will be John. And this John will be no ordinary child. The text continues and says many great things about John, including this, that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth. Now that's a statement. Verse 17, he declares additional prophecies to Zechariah about his coming son. Verse 17, he says, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What the angel of the Lord given to us as Gabriel tells Zechariah about his son is that John the Baptist will be the one to fulfill the prophecies in Malachi 3 and Malachi 4 about the man who had come before the Messiah to prepare the way for the Messiah. And then Luke continues to tell the story of Jesus' birth being foretold. And then he tells of a pregnant Mary going to visit a pregnant Elizabeth, leading to the birth of John the Baptist and then to Jesus. We'll step into more of those stories as we continue. But have you ever stopped to consider that God the Father thought so highly of God the Son coming in human flesh that not only did he inspire men to prophesy about it throughout the Old Testament, hundreds if not thousands of years before the birth of Christ, God thought so highly of his Son coming that he had men write about it. But he also sent men to prophesy about the birth of the one who would announce that the Lord is coming. God didn't just say, my son is coming. God said, I'm going to send a guy who's going to tell you my son is coming. He sent a herald to tell you someone's coming. 
And he put all of that before us. In the book of John, which might be confusing, book of John written by John the disciple, not John the Baptist. It gets a little confusing as you read it. John is talking about John. It's not that John. It's the other John. John, written by the disciple, writes this about John the Baptist in John 1. He says, and this is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? John the Baptist, he confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed this. I am not the Christ. And they continued to ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He said, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? They wanted to know who this guy was dressed in sackcloth, eating locusts and honey, and baptizing people out in the wilderness. And John the Baptist, in verse 23, says this, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. In verse 23, John the Baptist lays claim to the prophecies given about him in Isaiah 40. Make straight the way of the Lord, or prepare ye the way. Or even in the words of Isaac Watt, prepare him room. That God saw fit to send somebody to prepare the way for the arrival of his king. Now, if one was not good enough for you, the Lord sent about 40 of them up here this morning with toilet plungers and dusters to wave at you and to tell you, to call you, to prepare ye the way for the Lord. You have been heralded just as the Israelites were heralded. We are called to prepare him room. And this is the entire purpose of John the Baptist's ministry, is to prepare the path for Jesus to come. Later, After Jesus has started his public ministry, John continues to exclusively and overtly, over and over and over, make his only job, look at him. Look at him. You find that to be John the Baptist's only function in Scripture. Look at Jesus. And is that not a phenomenal model for us to consider as a life plan? And don't don't pay attention to me. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He's he's the only one that matters. Look at Jesus in John 3, 25 through 30. John, the disciple, writes this about John the Baptist. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, we're talking about he's pointing to Jesus, to whom you bore witness, Look, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. Basically, the disciples start to point out, John's disciples, point out to him that Jesus is becoming a much bigger deal than you. What are we going to do about this? And this is our tension sometimes too, isn't it? Because we may not have people in our lives that think, come to me and go, hey, Jesus is a bigger deal than you, but I can do that on my own. I can do that on my own in all kinds of slow and overt ways. And if I'm not paying attention, I can really start to believe that I'm the most important person. And I got a sneaky, sneaky suspicion it's not just me. 
which is my way of saying I think you're in the same boat. John sets them straight. In verse 27, John answers them and says this, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What John expresses to us here is a deep and complete understanding of who he was and how he was related to Jesus. And can I submit to you that that's one of the most crucial things that we need to grab a hold of this holiday season is who we are and how we're related to Jesus. You'd find several times in the New Testament, John the Baptist saying, I am not the Christ. I am not God. When I was in college, we worked at a summer camp and there was a guy who wore a t-shirt and I love this shirt. And it said, there are two things I know to be true. And on the back side, it said, the first thing is, there is a God. And the second thing is, you're not him. It, it was a funny reminder of the fact that people walk around as if they rule themselves, as if they own their own destiny, as if they're the commander of their own ship, as if they're totally in charge. And the answer, simply put, is No. There is a God, and you are not him. And he points to Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. He must become more and more and more important. I must become less and less and less important. He must become a much bigger deal. I must become a much smaller deal. It needs to be much more about him and not at all about me. And those are hard words. They're hard words for us to hear. They're not very American words, I can assure you of that. Because we live in a culture that puts before you, you go into any store and it's have it your way or build it the way you want or we can help you make it the way you want it. It's become all about this me, 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 personalization of everything that we could believe that we are the most important one. So as we launch into this Advent season, half a week into the month of December, and by the way, there's so little snow. You people tell me about North Dakota winters. This is a Memphis winter. This is exactly what it's like in the South. <laughs> I should point out to you, if you're not familiar, we came moved here from the South. My children, particularly my oldest son, prays every night for feet of snow. So should we get creamed with something over two feet? Because he will not accept a foot. He will not accept 18 inches. He wants feet, plural, of snow. You can pray against him if you want. That's his plan. So if we get it, he's the guy to thank. Feet of snow. As we launch into this Advent season, 
Let me ask you this question. Where are you in preparing the way for Jesus? Where are you in creating a life that points more to Jesus and less to self? Where are you in decreasing that he might increase? See, it would be so easy for us to follow the lead of the world and make it all about us. It'd be so easy for us in a holiday season to make it all about our preparations, to make it about decorating, to make it about shopping, to make it about planning family gatherings and miss Jesus. This week I was listening to a podcast and the the podcaster was talking about the difference that we have in the, this view of biblical hospitality versus kind of having people over versus kind of these family gatherings. And he said, when you have a gathering or when you have an event, you make it about the event where biblical hospitality points you to the people. So you have to reconcile to yourself as you have gatherings. Is it about the event or is it about the people? Because I think the tension that all of us wade into is we want it to be about the event. We want to have successful events. We want people to be happy and we miss the fact that it's about loving people, leading people to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, that him being the more important thing. Because when it's about an event, it's about me often and my acceptance that people might like me, celebrate me. And miss Jesus. Where are we in preparing the way for him? Because if we're going to prepare him room, our theme this season, you'll hear it overtly. If we are to prepare him room, we might then need to be more like John the Baptist. We might then need to come to a better understanding this season of who Jesus was and how we're related to him. So I point us back into John chapter 3, verses 35 and 36. This is what John the Baptist continues to say. The Father loves the Son and has given him all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What John the Baptist testifies here is that the Son has all things in his hands. All things in his hands. That includes you. So all the things in your life that you're not sure of this holiday season, just trust it's in his hands. Because it's all in his hands. That which you can handle, that which you cannot handle, including you. And including those people who might come over that you're not sure how to handle either. All in the palm of his hands because he is the king. John writes, if you believe in him, talking about Jesus, you have life. In fact, you have eternal life. You will live forever in a relationship with God the Father that will never, ever, ever, ever end And if you deny him, you will experience wrath. This is what John writes. John the Baptist says it. John the disciple pens it. 
John was all in with Jesus. John believed in Jesus, which is pretty astounding considering these guys were cousins, lived around each other for a good part of their lives. He believed in Jesus. He was all in with him. He called himself a friend of the bridegroom and that he rejoiced in his coming. So the question at least has to be asked is, do you believe in Jesus? And I don't just mean historically. Do you believe in Jesus, believing that he died on the cross, that he paid the penalty for your sins? Because friends, we can so quickly think it's ours to pay, that I need to do something, that it's Jesus plus this gets me somewhere, rather than believing it's Jesus that died on the cross. It's Jesus who paid the penalty for my sins. And that by believing in Jesus, we can have eternal life. See, that's believing in Jesus. Are we trusting him completely this holiday season? Are we trusting him and believing in him and putting all things into his hand because they're there anyway? He's got it all under control. Do we trust him? Because that's the relationship with him that John calls us to. That's the relationship to him that led John to submit himself to Jesus. That's the relationship with him that led John to submit his life to point at Jesus. And that's the relationship with Jesus that we are called to, that we would submit our lives to Jesus, that we would obey Jesus, that we would acknowledge him as our king, that we would spend all of our life not pointing at us, but pointing at him. It is about Jesus. Our lives are called to be about Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. Paul writes this in the book of Philippians. To live is Christ. And he means that literally. That my life when fully lived is Christ. And when I go to the store to shop, it's Christ. That when I go to work, it's Christ. When my children wake up at three in the morning and puke on me, it's Christ. When I meet friends for lunch, it's Christ. When I'm gathered with my entire family, it's Christ. When the people show up in my neighborhood and want to talk to me, and I just want them to leave because I'm in the middle of something else, it's Christ. And when I attend Christmas parties and gatherings, it's Christ. And when we gather as a church to be together, it's Christ. When you study the life of John the Baptist, you see a constant and consistent message from John the Baptist. It's not about him. Excuse me. It's not about me. It's all about him. Friends, I want that so badly for my life. I want it badly for yours. That we would lead a life as we walk out of this room and into the different sectors and, and, and circles that we walk in, not exalting self, 
but exalting Christ. Not preferring people to think of me or consider me or to think whether they think highly of me or whether I'm liked, but for it to be about Christ. That's what I want. Friends, all we've ever been able to accomplish on our own is a pile of sin. That's all we've ever been able to accomplish on our own. That's Advent. That on the darkest time and a dark night that the great Redeemer came and redeemed us. See, that's why we can make it all about Him. Because when we're rightly related to him, we understand when we walk into a room that is not how great is Ben. No, Ben is a disgusting, filthy sinner. And, and I listen, you, you don't believe me? We can spend some time. I can confess some things to you. You wouldn't like me very much. And I'm not just joking about that, right? That's kind of the place we're all in. See, we pretty ourselves up and we like to act like we've all got ourselves, we've got our junk together, don't we? But there's not one of us, the Bible says, not one. The only reason why we have anything is because Jesus has given it to us. And that he has redeemed us, not a little, all the way. That he's called us his child and blessed us greatly. That's why we point to him That's us being rightly related to him. That's us decreasing and him increasing. When I was a child, over the holiday seasons, my grandmother would come to visit us from Colorado. We lived at Tulsa at the time. She was my dad's mother, and we liked to call her Grandma Kay. I loved my Grandma Kay. Uh, One of her great traditions is, even when I was in college, if anyone in our family had a birthday, she mailed everyone cookies. It made for a great grandma treat. Just randomly, sporadically throughout the weeks, you'd get boxes of cookies in the mail and be like, hey, it's your cousin's birthday. Have a good day. Yes. I loved my grandmother. But when she would come to visit, I knew the plan. Because when Grandma Kay came, I needed to pack a bag and I needed to grab my pillow because I would be sleeping on the couch for the week. Now, as a child, I never understood why it wasn't my brother or sister, why it was always me, but this is the reality of it. I had a job, and that was to prepare room for her. You see where we're headed? Friends, we have to acknowledge who he is, and we have to prepare room for him, and I mean that very actively. This isn't a passive move. We have to prepare room for him. And I'm not talking about merely having a relationship with Jesus. I'm talking about preparing room for him to work, prepare room for him to move, prepare room for him to be God in my life. And for him to have the throne in my life, I must vacate it. I got to get out of the way. I got to go to the couch. We want to give him room to work. So what I want to put before you in our last remaining moments is is calling us to an intentional season to prioritize Jesus. That we might prioritize Jesus in our lives by taking on the discipline of reading and studying God's word. Joshua 1.8 says this, 
This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you might be careful to do according to what is written in it. Then you will be able to make your way prosperous, and then you will have a good success. Joshua writes day and night. See, this isn't the picture of a 10-minute quiet time and then going on with your day. This is the picture of you chewing on God's Word, thinking about God's Word, and relying on God's Word all day long. This Advent season, I want to call you into an intentional season of preparing room for Him in your life by studying His Word. Every year since I've been here, we've put an Advent guide before you. We've done it intentionally. Because we think that during this month of December, choosing to take an intentional step forward with God is a good decision. That if you usually spend a minute with God, maybe five is great. If you spend 10 minutes with God, go to 20. If you spend 20, go to half an hour. We're not trying to move mountains here. But we are calling us into an intentional relationship where we seek God. And if you open this up, it's easy. There are dates on here. You know what you do if you miss one? Just go to the day that day. This isn't like legalistic. If you miss December 3rd, you miss December 3rd. You want to read it before bed some other night? That's fine. There are reflections on here and Bible verses to point you to. There are passages for you to reflect on. There are activities for you you can engage with, with your family or with groups of people. If you have not picked one of these up, there are some probably still sitting in the pews and there are some in the back. But we want to be so intentional this holiday season in preparing him room to call you into God's word. And we want to call you to prioritize Jesus and your family. Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. God calls parents to teach their kids, please do not think it's the church. There's nothing in the world that 45 minutes in a back room with Jesus would do. And I literally mean that. That wouldn't be better done by you all week long. And if you don't believe me, Jesus said you're better off without me. Jesus said I'm sending the Holy Spirit to be with you. Jesus testified to that truth. Don't just dump your kids at church and think they're getting what they need. Or send them to a Christian school and think they're getting what they need. What kids need is their parents to talk to them about God. Deuteronomy says, Moses writes, when you sit down, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise. I got a sneaking suspicion at some point today, you are going to sit. Probably going to walk, probably going to lay down, probably going to rise. It's an all the time deal because our kids are watching us. This Advent season Can I call you into an intentional season of preparing room for him in your family? And I don't know what that's going to look like. Some of you don't have kids at home. I don't know what that looks like. Some of you have too many kids at home. I don't know what that's going to look like. Some of you don't have kids or grandkids at home. I don't know what that's going to look like. 
But what I want to challenge you to do is spend some time praying, God, what would you have me do with my family this season to prioritize you as we walk these next four weeks forward? Because I want this to be about Jesus. I want my kids to know it's about Jesus. I want my grandkids to know it's about Jesus. I want my cat to know it's about Jesus. I want everybody to know it's about Jesus. And I want to call you to prioritize Jesus in your relationships. All of them. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he was made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul writes that we are his ambassadors, that God will make his appeal to men and women through believers like you and me who will speak plainly and boldly about who he is and about what he's done for us. And that includes your neighbors and it includes your coworkers and it includes people that you run into in coffee shops. Why? Because God makes his appeal through men. Did you know that there is not a single time on the calendar when people are more likely to accept an invitation to church than for the next three weeks? There is not a time when people would consider going to church more than the next three weeks. A couple of years ago, Andy Stanley taught his church three things to listen for that should always trigger an invitation to church. This is what he said. He said, if you ever hear anyone say one of these three phrases, that's your trigger. This guy needs to get invited to church. This is what he said. If you're talking to someone, they mention, I've not been in church for a while. Not been in church. Invite him to church. That that ought to be an instant thing. You're just having a conversation with somebody. Yeah, you know, I haven't been to church in a while. I should go. Hey, do you want to come with me? I'd love for you to come with me. That's an instant trigger for an invitation. The other two are less um, easy. So when things are not going well, if you're talking to somebody like, man, things are just not going well, that that's the opportunity for you to step into that and say, hey, man, why don't you come to church with me? Because that's our faith, right? Because it wasn't going well with us before we met Jesus. That Jesus is the answer to all of our challenges, to the hope we need. That when somebody says, man, things are not going well with me. Man, I, I understand that. I, I've been there. Would you like to come to church with me? Because I've just found that Christ makes things a little simpler. That's the second trigger he puts before you. And the third one he says is, if you hear people say, I was not prepared for that. Whether that's a job situation or a health situation or somebody puts before you the idea, I, I just wasn't prepared for this place in life. I just wasn't prepared to walk through this. Andy puts before his church that that's a trigger that I'd accuse you and I should invite this guy to church. I wasn't prepared for that. Oh, why don't you come to church with me? That these are three things for us to cue into, to listen to. Why? Friends, because we live in a culture and a time and a place where for the next month, people are going to be looking for their happiness at the mall. And people are going to be looking for their happiness 
in family gatherings that are utterly going to let them down. And people are going to be looking for their happiness around trees and with big, jolly, red-hatted men, and they're going to be let down. Why? Because the world will not fill us in that way. It's the lie of the season, right, that we all buy into sometimes. The hope we have is Jesus, and that as believers, we are called to be a people who would constantly point to him. He is the answer. He's the solution. He's the hope. It's about him. It's not about us. This Advent season, I want to call us into an intentional, into an intentional season of preparing room for him in our lives, in our families, and in all of our relationships. That as we walk through this season, that we'd be like John the Baptist, who proclaimed he must increase, and that I must decrease, and that we would prepare room for him in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your abundant grace. Thank you that you have loved us. Thank you that you provided your son for us. Thank you that... Um, that we can have real life in you. Father, I pray for us as a church this season that we would prepare room for you. It'd be so easy for us to make it all about us and miss you. Father, I pray that we would look in all things to make everything about you this season. Help us to be intentional in our own lives, with our family, and with our relationships. Father, thank you for your just abundant grace through Jesus to us. Father, we give you thanks for that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.